All right, you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. All right, folks, so welcome to episode 39 of the What Makes Us Human podcast. I am J.R. Parks. John Lindemann is unable to join us this evening, so we have a special treat for you. Our producer, producer Hannah, will be uh, joining us for this episode. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing okay. All right. Since you're our guest on this episode, we decided to let you pick the topic. Okay. So what topic have you picked for us this evening? Well, first, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay? Okay. When I say spy, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Cold War, probably. Okay. Cold War... No, like, anyone specific? One person? I mean, 007, possibly. Okay. CIA, Max Smart, Secret Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> so for, the, for those of you who don't know, he calls me a producer. I'm also his wife. So this, this could get kind of interesting, because it's not like we talk or anything. So All right. let's see how this goes. <laughs> Okay, so when, so you said Cold War. Do you think that's when spying as sort of an institution began? No, I mean, there's been spies as long as there's been military incursions, I'm sure. But it's it's a somewhat recent, I mean, kind of ended around the time we were born, the Soviet Union fell. But still, it's a somewhat recent example where... Uh, of a period of time where spies were kind of thought to be everywhere. Yeah, you know, the I think of like the sort of Cold War panic of everyone selling out their neighbors as like a communist um, kind of things like that. But we're going to back it up quite a bit. We're going to talk about America's first spy ring. Okay. Do you know what time period America's first spy ring was in? Presumably the Revolutionary War. Was the Revolutionary War. All right. So you and I both enjoy history from this time period. Um, Absolutely. I'm going to do a quick little timeline leading up to the beginning of, to where we want to be whenever we talk about this firing. Okay. Because it didn't happen at the very beginning. Okay. Um, June 15th, 1775, Washington is named as Commander-in-Chief. Uh, June 17th of that same year is the Battle of Bunker Hill, which was a colonial defeat. July 3rd, Washington assumes command of the Continental Army. And for those of you who don't know, that's what the colonial forces were considered. Um, they called themselves the Continental Army. Um, they were in blue and the British were in red. Uh, 1776, there are many small battles and things that happen. But a couple things I thought you and I personally would find interesting. Um, January 15th, Thomas Paine's Common Sense is published. I think yeah. you and I both read that. Um, June 28th, there is a failed British naval attack at Sullivan's Island at which fort? In Charleston, it could be one of three or four at the time. Sullivan's Island. Okay. So it's Fort Moultrie. Okay. Um Really cool place. Uh, I think y'all talked about it in the Edgar Allan Poe episode. We did. Episode. Um, July 4th, 1776, famous date, Congress adopts the Declaration of Independence and it's sent to the printer. However, did you know that July 4th was not when the Declaration of Independence was signed? Yes. 
When was it signed? Like four days later or something? August 2nd. Okay. Delegates later. Yeah. Uh, delegates begin to sign the Declaration of Independence. That brings us to an important date in 1776, August 27th. Washington's army is defeated at the Battle of Long Island. They escape under the cover of darkness, and the British take control of New York City on September 15th, 1776. At this point, New York sort of becomes a, like the base for the British and exactly. the colonies. Yeah. Exactly. And New York is sort of like a big strategic point. There's a port there. There's, you know, it's a big city hub. Um, there's a lot going on. And now America cannot get, or the Continental Army cannot get close at all. Okay. Um, and then they have a, the Continental Army has a series of small defeats um, until December 26th, 1776, when... What happens? It's a very famous painting. Crossing the Delaware? Yep. Okay. Washington crosses the Delaware and captures Trenton from the Hessians. Do you want to talk about what a Hessian is? A uh, Hessian is a mercenary of Germanic descent. So from that area of Europe. Also the Headless Horseman. Yes, I think he was a Hessian. He was a Hessian. Um... So, yeah, so they take Trenton back from the Hessians. 1777 brings another hard year for the Continentals. Um, they have a victory at Princeton on December 3rd, and the Marquis de Lafayette arrives in Philadelphia, which was at the time the capital of the um, colonies, on July 27th. Um, there's a militia victory at the Battle of Bennington in Vermont on August 16th. Um, now, militia is very different than regular troops because it's just sort of farmers and sure more everyone's a volunteer but they're more they've got a little bit more freedom to come and go and they've got uh control of like a certain area they don't follow specific orders yeah um but then comes general howe of the british army and he begins to sort of turn the tide in the, for the war in uh, the new england colonies he arrives in maryland on august 25th they win the Battle of Brandywine on September 11th in Pennsylvania. And then the British take and occupy Philadelphia. So it's a big moral blow to take the Continental Capital. Sure. So he, they've sort of got the Continental Army on their retreat. Um, and they drive, up, they drive off the Continental Army at the Battle of Germantown on October 4th. Um, and then you've got the winter of in Valley Forge. Yep. Um, Which we've talked about on this podcast. Yes, you have. Um so all of this sort of sets the stage for November of 1778, when the Continental Army is scrambling for some sort of advantage over the British Army, um, and they desperately want to get a man on, on the inside in New York City. Um, this is when Washington himself, uh, so these orders came directly from the Commander-in-Chief, he um, commissions Major Benjamin Talmadge, of the Continental Army um, to form an intelligence ring. And Talmadge was a Connecticut dragoon or a cavalryman. But spying was super dangerous at the time. Sure. I mean, prior to this sort of organized attempt, there had been other attempts at spying. And uh, I believe it was Nathan Hale mm -hmm. uh, attempted to infiltrate New York as a spy and was killed. Yep. He was... What I read about Hale was he was really excited about it and really sort of gung-ho and ready to go. 
but he was terrible. Um, he was also very young. He was only 20. But he was a good friend of Talmadge. Uh, they both went to Yale together. Um, do you know what the famous quote that's attributed to Hale is? He may have said, I regret that I only have one, but one life to lose for my country. Some people misquote this as saying one life to live. Um, he may have said this. He may not. It could have been... So this sort of gets into something interesting that I know I find interesting when it comes to war um, and uh, wartime. This could have been a bit of continental propaganda to boost morale at a time where the war could go, you know, either way. Um, huh? Try to rally the, you know, literally rally the troops. Sure. Um, and you don't really think about propaganda being as big as it is. We, I think, I think more propaganda, war propaganda is being really popular in World War Two. And one, but yeah. And, yeah. I think World War II more because I think like the Nazi propaganda versus the American and that we have I, I think we have more surviving evidence of it. Sure. Than, I mean in World War One, one of the one of the things the Germans lost early in World War One was the propaganda side of the war as they poured through Belgium and what was you know, what the English newspapers called the rape of Belgium. Yeah. You know, so propaganda that was actually why, in World War II, um, Hitler saw propaganda as so important because he saw how much the Germans failed at it in the First World War and how that hurt them in their war effort. But that's a tangent. It is a tangent, but it's still going to bring it back. Um, so, yeah, you have Nathan Hale and what he may or may not have said. Um, so Talmadge begins to recruit people that he knew he could absolutely trust. I'm not sure, I guess in hindsight it was a good idea because it worked, but I'm not sure if this was a good idea at the time because anyone who could do some, a little bit of research could have figured this out. So there were a few main players in this first spy ring, which is known as the Culper Ring, C-U-L-P-E-R. So for a long time, the identities of three of the main players of this ring were not known. In the 1930s, a man named, and I promise you, I'm not making up this name. I had to read this name a few times to make sure I was actually reading it correctly. Um, this man named Morton Pennypacker, okay. a Long Island historian in the 1930s, was doing some evidence, not some evidence, was doing some research on some local families and businessmen, and he was looking at evidence from the Revolutionary War and compared some business documents of a couple people to some papers that were written, basically the spy notes that were written to Washington in Washington's letters at Mount Vernon, um, and he discovered that two of the key players of the Culpa Ring were two men named Robert Townsend and Abraham Woodhull. Sure. And I think, uh, was one, wasn't one of these discovered because they happened to recognize that the handwriting was the same? Yes, he yeah. analyzed the handwriting. Because 
Talmadge went to great lengths to hide the identities of his spies, mm-hmm. even so far that you know after his death in 1835, his memoirs were memoirs were published. Yeah, and he makes no reference to the Culper Ring. Not at all. He never he, like even after his death, he protected the identity of his his uh, his spies and. Yep. You know, to, to such an extent that we didn't even know it existed until the 1930s. Exactly, when Pennypacker, I love that name. It's a great name. And, but, and even then, we, don't, we, we didn't know a few of the people that were in it, at least one of, the, one of the people that was in it until the 1950s. Yeah. So, yeah, they uh, they went to great lengths, even well after, to, to keep these names hidden and... It worked, clearly. I mean, you yeah. know, Washington didn't know the names of the other spies. And he didn't want to know. He wanted to be kept. After yeah, yeah after Hale's death, they, they wanted to... Oh, yeah. Hale really showed them the importance of the, the secrecy. And really the, comp- the complicated nature of the whole ring itself. Yeah. So we knew Talmadge was part of it because he was placed at the head. And we have correspondence between him and Washington that proves he was, you know, the uh, ringleader. And Talmadge recruited people from his hometown of Setauket, Long Island. Yep. He recruited Captain Caleb Brewster. And we know he was part of it because he signed his own name to reports. He didn't have a code name or anything. I did see that. He insisted on not having a code name. Yep. So Brewster is probably the boldest person in the Culpa Ring. He he's he was a whaler, maybe a black market smuggler. So he would use his whale boats in the ring to sail across the Long Island Sound to where the um, contingent of an army of the Continental Army was in Connecticut. The major player in Setauket is Abraham Woodhull. He is a farmer and a civilian. Other than Talmadge and Brewster, everyone is a civilian. Okay. So these are just regular people. Um, Woodhull is given the code name Samuel Culper at this point, and he's sort of responsible for the day-to-day workings of the ring in Setauket. Um, he travels to New York City and observes troop movements, numbers, supplies, anything and everything he can get his his mind and eyes on, I guess, to um, take back to Washington. Was he the one who uh, had a sister in the city? So that was kind of his excuse for when he was questioned about why he was going to New York every couple weeks. It was to visit his sister. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, his sister's name was Mary. Okay. I also I also saw that uh, all of these people that were recruited kind of for the inner ring of this had reasons to hate the British. Yeah. They had lost family members. They had lost um, possessions. They had, you know, they had uh, suffered atrocities at the hands of the British, Mm -hmm. which made them easy to recruit to to the spying. Yeah. Woodhull, however, he was, he didn't like spying. He did hate the British, and he was, he wanted to get back at them, but spying, he was super anxious about it. Which I would be too. I know I would make a terrible spy. I would sing like a canary first thing that happened. Yeah, you you would be worried the entire time. Yeah, I, me and anxiety don't get along very well. And probably to also 
take some suspicion off of him as to why he's constantly going to New York City, Woodhull then um, he recruits a man in inside New York, and that's where we get Robert Townsend. Okay. Um, Robert Townsend owns a tavern and a dry goods store that many British officers like to frequent, and um, he's able to sit and listen and record information from these British officers. That that was the other thing that I, I noted in a lot of this was most of this wouldn't have been possible had the British officers managed to keep their mouths shut. Yeah. But oh, yeah. whether in these taverns or various other places, uh, one you know, a tailor shop, mm-hmm. they just like to talk about what was going on, no matter seemingly no matter who was in earshot. Absolutely. So there's another there's some conjecture, other than Town than Townsend, there's some conjecture as to the participation of a woman named Anna Strong. Um, she is a neighbor of Woodhull's and friend of Talmadge and his family. She, her role in it was she would use clothing on her laundry to signal meetings between Woodhull and Brewster. And the number of handkerchiefs or petticoats or something would signal which cove they would need to meet or what meeting place they would meet at. Yeah, I saw that. What what she hung on the line mm-hmm. and how many she hung on the line. Yep. Um, I, I also did, I, I saw there was some debate as to whether or not there's any truth to that. Yeah. It's, it's commonly stated, but I saw some de- debate as to whether or not there's any truth to her using the clothesline. But there was also records that the British were suspicious of someone who sounds a lot like Anna Strong. Yeah. So whether or not she was using the clothesline, you know, it does seem like she was likely involved. Likely. And the suspicion could have been on her because um, her husband was on a British prison ship, the Jersey. He was a known patriot. Um, she did not, I don't think she kept her opinions really to herself. And she's she's older, though. She's probably in her 50s, has quite a few children, like six or seven children at this point, and she's still doing this for this spy ring. Yeah, I saw her her husband's name, uh, Sela Strong. Yeah, Sela. Uh, he was one of the few people. So HMS Jersey mm-hmm. was nicknamed Hell. Yeah, it was. And it was very, cool. very few people survived it, but her husband was actually one of the few who did. Yep. He did. I saw reports where some people think that maybe she had been imprisoned on the Jersey, but that wouldn't have been likely. Um, no, I didn't see anything no. to that effect. The British wouldn't have imprisoned women, and um, the reason people think that may have been sort of like an urban legend is because she was probably there often to see Sela. Um, and some of the some of the research I did named him as part of the ring too, but I don't. I don't, he's not sort of, I didn't see where he would be. He's on the prison ship. Yeah. Like this whole time. Yeah. He's, he's not really helping. Yeah. I also saw mentions of Sally Townsend, sister of Robert. Yep. So the one that, uh, that he was, uh, is this the same sister he was going to visit or is this a different sister? Um, Woodhull had, oh, had married. Oh, you're right. Yeah. But she was just 17 when she started spying. Yep. And uh, apparently attracted the attention of a Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe, 
mm-hmm. in the British Army and uh, used this to gather information. Yep. And we'll get into this later, um, afterwards. But there is a TV show that's based on the spy ring, which is how I got interested in it to begin with. Okay. Um, we're talk. We'll talk about it later. But Simcoe is a very interesting character in that TV show. So Robert Townsend, um, he begins to listen and spy. He was given the code name Culper Jr. He sort of reinforced his cover with the British by writing pro-Tory articles for a newspaper called the Royal Gazette. Can you tell us what a Tory is? Tory is someone who supports the British crown. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, the British in, in the colonies. These are also sympathetic colonists to the British cause. Um, yeah. This is also where James Rivington comes into the equation. Yep. So James Rivington is the editor of the Royal Gazette. He may have also served as an agent to the Continental Army, although that possibility was not discovered until about 1860, and it's still sort of debated to this day. 1860 or 1960? I saw 1860. Okay. Yeah, I did see, you know, so, so Rivington owned a coffee house up in Manhattan that was popular with, with mm-hmm. British soldiers, mm-hmm. and he published the Loyalist newspaper. Yep. Um, so Robert Townsend was a silent partner in the coffee house. Yeah, he was. And worked for this newspaper. So they kind of both use this as their cover, and mm-hmm. you know, presumably Robert Townsend is the one who recruited James Rivington to, yep. to help. Yep. Um, Townsend would also send coded messages in the Royal Gazette as, like, um, co- they were coded, and then they were also disguised as advertisements. Yeah. Um, and those were sort of interesting. I, I did see that after the war, uh, Washington visited Rivington mm-hmm. and uh, presented him with a bag of point, gold coins for the intelligence that he provided. Yep. Probably for the use of his printer, too. Because I can't imagine it was for, like, the printer for the codes. Other members of the spy ring included Hercules Mulligan. Yep. Which, you know, I could start rapping Hamilton if I wanted to. But I'm not going to embarrass you like that. Okay, remember, Hamilton's the bad guy. There, uh, we're not going to get into this. I like the musical. Okay. You're, you, just be glad I didn't start rapping when I mentioned Lafayette. All right. So Mulligan is a tailor. We talked. Our, we already talked about the tailor shop. Who was his shop was popular with the British officers. Um, and then there's Austin Rowe, who is a tavern keeper in Setauket, and he sort of acted as a go between New York and Setauket when Woodhull could not. Sure. Yeah, he was. Uh, since he was a merchant, again, mm-hmm. he had he had valid reason to make these repeated trips. Exactly, and he would go. Uh, we'll get into this in a little bit, but. Um, he was he would go to Manhattan, like you said, with um, the excuse of buying dry goods and things for his business. Um, there is also an unnamed woman who is de- given the designation three five five in some of the correspondence. Um, she is also credited with being a part of the ring. She's recorded as being Robert Townsend's secret girlfriend, or paramour is the word that I saw used. But her identity remains unknown. Some people think that's who she is. There, There's... No one really knows who she is. It, she could be Anna. I was going to say, I saw a reference that said that uh, the, the number may have referred to Anna Strong. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about. Yep. Woodhull 
puts 355 in a letter to Washington talking about how um, he describes her as one who hath ever been serviceable to this correspondence. You know, it could have, like you said, it could have been Anna, it could have been somebody close to both sides who was able to ferry info back and forth. Or, okay. so we don't really know. And other people argue that she never existed. Okay. So, to get the information from New York to Washington was very dangerous. Obviously, the spy ring had to create creative ways of coding information. So Talmadge had this code book. And I wish I could look at see, look and see how big it is and see how much they had to memorize. Keywords and terms were given numerical values. So that's where we get 355. For example, George Washington was given the designation 711. Talmadge was 721. And New York was 727. Um, and they would, you know, they would write those numbers instead of the words in their messages. Uh, the ring also used invisible ink, which I love this. I, Wa- sorry. I saw that. It was actually created by Nathan Hale's brother, I believe, and given to them for this purpose. Yep. Washington called it his sympathetic stain, which, hello, new band name, anyone. That, it's so funny. Okay. Words were written in an agent, which was the ink, by one person, normally Culper or Culper Jr., and then a reagent was applied to make the words appear. Yeah. And Talmadge and Washington had the reagent, and it was said that Washington was also fond of this, um, and he would write messages in between his letters in the invisible ink. Yeah, I, I saw that sometimes that's how they would pass the information uh, they would write what looks like a normal letter and then write a coded message between mm-hmm. the lines of the normal letter. But they just had a limited amount of this. They did. So it wasn't something they, they could use a lot. They, they didn't. It was it was used very sparingly. And then we are, we already talked about how Townsend would send coded message, messages in the Royal Gazette. And then, do you know what the term dead drop refers to? Sure. Uh, you have an agreed upon location where you drop information, letters, whatever, um, and leave it. And then someone else who knows where the location is comes back Mm -hmm. later and picks it up. Yep. So whenever I read that, immediately I did not think about spying. And I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but this is what I thought of. Um, Have you ever seen the movie Heavyweights? No. About kids who go to, quote, fat camp and... They Ben Stiller's in it, and he like has to turn them. He turns them into a weight loss camp. This sounds like a terrible Disney Channel movie. It was, but it wasn't terrible. Okay. I loved it. It has. It's got a young Keenan Thompson in it, and but they have a dead drop. They have a hollow stump where one person, after the Ben Stiller character comes in and tries to make them eat healthier, they they don't have any of their good food. They've got this hollow stump, and in the woods. And someone drops, like, Eggo waffles and... No, I'm getting that in Stranger Things mixed up. <laughs> he drops, like, Big Macs and fries and all sorts of, like, junk food. And these kids go and find it. So... Okay. It... You know, it also... It was just kind of funny that I thought about that. Um, but uh, it's a way to protect the identities of the ring... So one person drops and another person comes and gets it. And, sure. You know, it's less suspicious than seeing two people meeting in the middle of the woods. Yeah, I saw a reference to, uh, again, back to the clothesline. 
that there were six different dead drops and the number of what was it, handkerchiefs that she would hang mm-hmm. on the line told, told them which location to go to. Exactly. The way information would work, if Townsend didn't put information in the Gazette, he would write it down in code and send it with Austin Rowe when he visited the store for supplies. And Rowe could go back and forth. He would take the information back to Setauket to Woodhull, who would go through the information and see what needed to be sent to Washington. Okay. And then he would make, he would signal Anna Strong, she would signal Brewster, and they'd make a dead drop. And Brewster would row the information back to Connecticut, where they would, the, um, they'd take it from Connecticut to Morristown, New Jersey. Okay. Which is where Talmadge and Washington were stationed with the, it was sort of like the headquarters of the Continental Army. Okay. It was more secure than a one-person drop, but you can imagine it's probably not the quickest way to get information. Sure. Probably takes a while. And this actually is demonstrated. So they would they would send Washington a lot of different, um, like, troop movements, troop numbers, all sorts of information about the city itself. There are two main events, which the ring is sort of credited with helping figure out. So at this point in time, the U.S., or the Continental Army, and the French Army are in this sort of shaky alliance, because the French obviously want to get back at the British for the French and the New War. Um, and the French and the British have been enemies all forever. Of yep. Up until World War One, basically. I don't know. They're probably... I, I don't think they still like each other. The French... Uh, are, there's a contingent of French troops that arrive, but obviously, if you were stuck on a boat for 70 days, because that's how long it took to cross the Atlantic, you're probably not in the best shape immediately. There's a British general, Sir Henry Clinton, was preparing some 8,000 troops to attack the French force, because he knew they were coming. And the French force had like 5,800 troops under the Comte de Rochambeau. They just arrived at Newport, Rhode Island uh, on July 11, 1780. Townsend figured out that Clinton was going to do this and coded the information and sent it through his channels to try to get it to Washington. And the rain went as fast as they could from the time that Townsend figured out the information to the time it got to Washington was 10 days, which is a record for the rain. Okay. However, they were not the first or the second bit of intelligence to reach Lafayette about the planned attack. Okay. Um, there were a couple other, there's a couple other intelligence measures that came through. I think Mulligan was one of them, and then there was another one that was actually French, that they they were able to warn the French in time. And by the time Clinton got there, the French were, or by the time the information from the Culpa Ring got to Lafayette, the French were already landed and they had their defenses shorn up, so they were okay. Well, I saw that as a result of this, Washington had his own operative spread information that he was preparing to raid New York. Yep. Which kind of delayed the British and gave the French more time. Yep, yep. Because Clinton um, returned back to New York. So Clinton actually... 
the re the research I found said that Clinton didn't attack the French. He went back to New York. Yeah. He was afraid Washington was going to attack New York, so they, they pulled yep. back. Yeah. Yep. The other big thing that the ring is sort of credited with, and I, I think this is a loose credit, because the ring, I don't think the ring really figured this out. It just happened by happenstance. Okay. Um, so throughout the Revolutionary War, we have Continental Troops up in Canada, right? Okay. And one of the main Continental players in Canada is a man named... Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. Yeah. He's sort of like a hero to the Continental Army. He's getting victory after victory after victory, and he's wounded pretty severely in battle. He's taken back to New Jersey to the surgeons to recuperate, and he's given a command at West Point. Sort of a desk job because he can't be in the field anymore, even though that's what he really wants to do. He is behind on being paid by seven years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I think you are you and I would be pretty upset about that. Sure. Any person would. However, you know, the Continental Army is strapped for cash. They're sort of relying on people to donate things at this point. So they don't have the money. They don't really even have the money to pay their regulars yeah. or anybody at this point. They're floundering financially. Sure. But Arnold, Arnold felt like he wasn't getting the credit he was due. He didn't feel like he was getting... Obviously, wasn't getting paid, um, and he felt he felt cheated. As a result, he begins to be in contact with the head of British intelligence, a major John Andre. Okay. And he offers to sell West Point to the British, not literally sell them for money, but sell out West Point to the British for I think some was twenty thousand pounds. And a command in the British Army. Okay. And do you know why West Point is such a big, a, like, it's it's crucial to the Continental Army. Like, they can't lose West Point. If they lose West Point, it's all over. Okay. Where West Point is, it's sort of at, you know, it's, if you control West Point, you control the Hudson River. And because of where it is on the river, there's this S-curve. Ships have to slow down to go by, they're sitting ducks for the cannons. Okay. Um, so there's no way any British ships are going to try to come through there. So it's it's sort of like the first line of defense on the Hudson River. Um, their con Continental Army really needs to keep it. So for Arnold to offer to sell out West Point would be a crippling blow to the Continental Army. Major John Andre disguises himself in civilian clothes, goes to West Point, meets with Arnold, and is trying to get out. He has Arnold's letter and West Point plans with him. And he is caught. Okay. By a couple of Army regulars. And the way he's caught... Because he... They could have thought he was just some random person... But there is something about him that they're like, mm, I think we need to take this guy to our commanding officer. 
Do you know what tipped them off? No. His boots were too shiny. Oh. They were like, your boots are way too nice for some rando to be walking through here. So they were going to take him to Arnold, who he had just met with, which had they taken him to Arnold, it would have been free and clear. Everything would have gone through. However, while they were waiting on to move him, Major Benjamin Talmadge shows up and figures out the same thing, looks at his boots and realizes this dude is no civilian. Okay. They search him, they find the plans in Arnold's letter, and they figure out that Arnold is a traitor. And Arnold flees West Point, and Talmadge captures the head of British intelligence. Nice. And Major John Andre was hanged as a spy in 1780. Okay. I saw a couple other things credited to the Culper Ring. Uh, one, uh, the British had a counterfeiting operation to try to weaken the continental currency. Yes. Yep. And in fact, at one point, they even stole reams of the paper that was used. Yep. Uh, but the spies figured this out and alerted Continental Congress, and they were able to to, to retire that currency yep. and issue new currency. Yep. So obviously, you know, if you're trying to cripple this new government, that would be a big blow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is they. In 1781, they obtained a copy of the British naval codes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave them to the French Navy, mm-hmm. which gave the French Navy uh, quite, a, quite a profound advantage against the British fleet during the Battle of Chesapeake that yep. year. And that victory was instrumental in allowing Washington to pull off the siege of the British at Yorktown. Yep. So that's... Like, that's like a crowning achievement for this group. Yeah. In my research, I only saw these two. Um, I'm not sure. We we live in the same house. We should have compared notes. (laughs) Quite all right. Makes things interesting. Um, So, yeah, they did all that. um, And then the Copa Ring continued to keep Washington informed on British troop movements and allowed for the Continental Army to make informed decisions. Um, Adding... To the American success of the Revolutionary War. Yep. And that's the Culper Ring. All right. Well, that was uh, that was certainly an interesting one. I uh, prior to you mentioning the subject to me, I I knew spies existed, but I had never heard of this particular group. So yeah, I had mentioned earlier that the reason I got involved, not involved, interested with this spy ring is. I discovered a TV show on AMC called Turn, and it was about this whole spying. And the more research I did, obviously I didn't expect it to be completely historically accurate, but parts of it, I was surprised at how much of it event-wise was. One of the big, and obviously artistic license is taken, for entertainment value, um, one of the big things they they did was they had Woodhull and Anna Strong. Anna Strong was much younger in the show, and they had her and Woodhull have a relationship when Woodhull was younger than Anna Strong, and they wouldn't have been. They did. I don't even think they really. They may have seen each other in town, but they didn't really know each other. 
Um, you mentioned John Graves Simcoe. Simcoe is like the ultimate bad guy in the show. He's just like a bad penny that keeps popping up. And he's actually the reason that Woodhull gets involved in inspiring to begin with because he wants Simcoe gone because Simcoe has his eyes on Anna. So there's a whole lot of drama, a whole lot of stuff that goes on. I think they mixed up a few facts there because Simcoe was after the other female that we mentioned in our story. Yes. Uh, Sally. Yes. Yeah. But Well, and li- like I said, it's creative license to designed to create entertainment. Sure. Um, however, they did the Benedict Arnold thing is completely historically accurate. Okay. And the um, Major Andre for a couple seasons is a big player. Um, they One thing that the show does that I actually like is 355 is a woman named Abigail who was a slave in Anna Strong's household. Okay. She is freed by, um, by the British because they freed slaves as part of their trying to cripple the Continental Army and the colonies themselves. Okay. Um, And she is sent to Philadelphia to... She gets a job, and she's actually in Major John Andre's, where he's, I guess, billeted, um, which in the show is actually Ben Franklin's house. And she begins to ferry information from the... Uh, head of British Intelligence's, you know, she's in the center of it all, and she's getting information from there to Anna for Anna to take to the Culper Ring. Okay. Um, and I, I really like the way they did that because she's and she's motivated because she also has a son, and she's trying to keep him safe, but um, she ends up... The Major John Andre character is a very sympathetic character. You end up liking him very much. Um, but he's also like a romantic and again, designed to entertain. Um, but they do the... This description reminds me why I got bored when I tried to watch this show. You watched one episode (laughs) and you were like, okay, this isn't for me. You, uh, you didn't touch on where the name Culper Ring comes from. So it's, it's said to come from, I think... So Washington suggested it. Yeah. Based on Culpeper County. Yes. In Virginia, which was an area he'd surveyed when he was younger. Yes, and he they just shortened it to Culper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should have written that down. Mm-hmm. That's why there's two of us to cover more information. I wasn't done talking about the show, by the way. Sorry. Okay, one more thing that I think is really cool. They do get a copy of the naval book in the show, but instead of giving it to the French, they end up... Um, there, Rivington's printer is tasked with printing the um, the book for all for the British Navy. They mess up the signals in the show so that each person gets a different copy of the book, and so there it's just chaos. Um, all right. I think it's really cool. Okay, I'm done. That's it. All right. <laughs> so that is all about the Culper Ring possibly call America's first spiring. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Well, thank you for uh, listening. And uh, hopefully, hopefully John will be back next week. So you don't have to hear me talk anymore. <laughs>
Because this was really stressful. I don't know how you guys do this. Yeah, we uh, we hope John is uh, is feeling better and uh, look forward to uh, to next week. We'll see you then.